0: 1 Kings, and when you get there, I want you to go ahead and turn to chapter 17, 1 Kings chapter 17. I'm glad to uh, be here this morning with everybody. I know uh, we've all had probably different kinds of weeks this week. Um, Some of us have probably had good weeks, bad weeks, busy weeks, slow weeks, weeks having to come back from vacation are not always good weeks, but we're glad to have Richard back with us, right? Um, Certainly, if you're visiting, we're glad to have you here as well. Um, What we're trying to do here, um, even though it probably comes across a little differently just because our meeting place is a little different and Maybe the way we do things seems a little different to you. Um, And our group's eyes may be familiar, it may be different, I don't know. What we're trying to do here is serve God uh, in sincerity and truth. And so hopefully what you see, what we're doing, seems to line up with what you know is true from God's Word. And uh, if it's not, feel free to ask questions. Um, We'll we'll be happy to talk through some of that stuff, why we do what we do. Um, This morning I want us to look... Uh, in this text, because I really am going to be spending time just talking about a man, a prophet of God named Elijah, um, and what I wanted to accomplish with this uh, lesson, I'm not sure I totally am going to accomplish. Um, but my goal for this lesson is to just kind of move through Elijah's life, um, not all of it, but most of it, what we have recorded for us, and that begins in the book of First Kings, and that begins in chapter seven, and. While we move through Elijah's life, I'm just going to highlight some lessons. So this is going to be a pretty textual uh, sermon. We're just going to be reading the text and drawing lessons from it. But the lessons that I'm going to be trying to draw from this are lessons that I think uh, teach us about our parallel, kind of our own walk with God. Um, As Christians... We don't live in the and Christians in 2016 in Atlanta, Georgia. We're not living in the exact same context as Elijah. We have a different culture. We have a few thousand years separating us and him. Um, and even in God's plan, we kind of live in a new time, right? Jesus hadn't come when Elijah was on the scene. And so some truths that Jesus brings were not made as plain to Elijah and to the people of his time. In fact, God was still... Uh, operating in kind of this uh, kingly position of of being the lord of a physical nation of people. Um, now, granted, those people weren't doing so well being God's people. They were kind of following after false gods and they were doing their own thing. But what I want us to see in Elijah's life are some principles that are true then and are true now even for us. And Elijah, as a prophet of God, may be serving a role that we don't necessarily see ourselves serving in. The bottom line is that he was a servant of God, right? And he was trying to teach the truths of God to people that didn't necessarily want to hear it. And as believers ourselves, we may find ourselves in similar positions, right? And so let's look at Elijah's life and see the things that we can see from this. I hope that this teaches us about Elijah's life, and I hope we can see the parallels to our own. So, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 17, I want to read a few verses here. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here, and turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Cherith which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. A few things that are helpful to know just as we begin talking Elijah was a prophet of God, and this really begins uh, his ministry, his work, as far as we know it, right? This is the moment that we see Elijah kind of come into the picture, and Ahab, you see him mentioned in verse 1, was the king of the northern land that God's people were dwelling in, the northern section of that land. And they called themselves Israel. The people in the southern part called themselves Judah, kind of as a group. And so Ahab is the king of the northern part. And here's something to know about him, and you're going to see this as we go through. He was a terrible king. Um, As far as God was concerned, he was worthless in a lot of ways. God's going to come through and say, and I think we're going to read a few of these verses, that he he was the worst king up to that point that Israel had ever had. He turned the people of God, away from God by giving them false idols to worship. He basically, and we're going to talk about this more, funded the prophets of false gods from his own pocket and from the treasury and things like that. He just had all kinds of things mixed up. And so in verse 1, the true prophet of God, right, Elijah, someone working for the real God, it goes to Ahab. And this is the first time we see Elijah What a job he's given kind of right off the bat. You know, sometimes when we think about being followers of God, we think we kind of get eased into it. You know, like, all right, this is new for me. I'm going to, like, believe God. I'm going to try to do what he says. And so we're going to ease into this. I'm just going to kind of lay low for a while, right? But look at Elijah. He's a believer of God, and the first thing that we see him doing is going to the king of the land. Not only going to the king of the land to just kind of hang out, you know, talk sports or whatever, (laughs) He's going to the king of the land, and look at what he's saying. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. What is he doing to Ahab here? It seems like he's kind of telling Ahab, you're really not the boss, right? You're going to someone who is against you fundamentally. They don't worship your God, and if you address that that's probably going to cause some friction right and you're telling him i'm not really standing before you this isn't about you this is about i'm i'm standing before god right the lord before whom i stand that's who my uh judge is that's who my king is and as it concerns you your land your people are not going to have water you're not going to have rain for three years which is what we know it ends up being three and a half years do you think Ahab's going to respond to this well? You know, come into my presence and you tell me that you're not accountable to me and you're telling me and my people that you're going to withhold water from us? Uh, terrible first task if you ask me. Um, I don't want to be Elijah in this moment. Right? And so there's a couple of things uh, that we know. Uh, Elijah's name, you know how names mean stuff sometimes? Um, I think these days we just name people, things that sound cool, or we like, but usually names have meant something. Elijah's name means Yahweh is my God. So when he comes before Ahab, Ahab thinks Baal and some of these other things are his God. The very presence of Elijah is in opposition to him, right? Like when he says, hi, my name's Elijah, he's saying, hi, Yahweh is my God, right? And so there's immediate conflict there so he stands in direct opposition to ahab so not only would this mark him as an enemy spiritually this would have marked him as an enemy of the state right um and so uh i think what we can learn from this in a parallel for us is maybe in our service to god god kind of throws our feet in the fire immediately it may feel that way right But what we need to realize, like what Elijah realized, is that whatever task God gives us to do in service to him, we're standing before him at the end of the day. We're not standing before whatever task we're having to complete. We're not standing before whoever's in opposition to us. We're standing before the command or the authority of the Lord, right? And Elijah notices that. And I think that's really what fuels Elijah through this. I You know, if we look at Elijah as the parallel, if this is the beginning of his ministry and his faith is maybe a little smaller in this moment because he's just starting, that's probably what's fueling him through this. Is like, I'm doing it because God says I have to. Don't we have to kind of just do that sometimes? We may not have like uh, ideal motivation, you know, we're not doing it because I love the Lord so much in this moment. I'm just doing it because I know I have to. And maybe that's where Elijah's drawing some of this. I stand before the Lord and I know I got to do this, right? Look at what God uh, does here in verse three. After he tells Ahab this, it says, the, Lord, the word of the Lord comes to him, depart from here, turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook of Cherith. It's almost like God knew that this was going to be setting him up for potential disaster. Right? He doesn't say like go and like just go chill at home. He's like, go over here and hide now. Right? If you think that God isn't willing to put you on the front lines and like give you difficult tasks, that maybe even put you in some danger, look at Elijah's example. That should just kind of blow that notion out of the water. God sent him right up to the king, told him some hard stuff, and said, Alright, time to go hide. <laughs> right? Also, God used Elijah to tell them about a a drought that was coming. Do you think Elijah wanted to endure a drought just on a personal level? Like, does he want to think about not having water for three years? Probably not. And so God's here says, go to this brook, right? You see immediate provision here. And there's some security where a stream is. But look at what also he says. Verse four, you're going to drink from the brook. And I have commanded the ravens to feed you. Right. So I see this kind of a lot of symbolism here. Right off the bat, Elijah's doing something hard. God hides him and protects him from like the negative influence, the danger going on. And we don't only see God hiding and protecting him. We see him supplying his needs. I think when we're kind of fresh, you know, when we're first starting our service to the Lord, whatever task we have to do right off the bat is going to be really hard because it's new to us. right? But God will protect you. I'm seeing that from Elijah here. And he's also going to give you the things you need to live. That's a promise of the Lord. We've been talking about promises this year. There's plenty of promises in the New Testament that reflect this idea to Christians, right? God takes care of the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. How much more does he not love you and care for you, right? Do you see that being true for Elijah? What if Elijah said, God... I can't do this because it's going to put me in danger, he would have never experienced this shelter from the Lord. He would never have seen the brook and the raven feeding him because he stopped before he ever knew that this was going to happen. Right? And so sometimes when hard things happen to us, we, we're tempted to stop because we can't see what's, what's the next step, what's around the corner, and when, when God is actually going to provide for us and take care of us, even though we had to go through something hard. And so here we see God providing for him. Let's move on to this next section. Um, Look at verse uh, 6 and 7 here. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. So exactly what God said was going to happen happens, right? We can trust God. But look at verse 7. After a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Elijah's own prophecy kind of comes back to bite him. In this moment, he said, no rain's going to come. And well, what happens after a while when there's no rain? Even the streams and the brooks are going to dry up, right? So can't you imagine at this moment, Elijah's going, ah, man, well, maybe I should start praying for rain, Mm -hmm. right? Like, I kind of have some influence over that, apparently. So now that I'm adversely affected by the truth, maybe I should manipulate it, right? Maybe I should kind of work to change my circumstances, work to change the mission, right? But look at what happens uh, in verse 8 through 24. Let's read this together. This is a longer section here, so I might pause for a moment just to make some comments along the way. Verse 8, Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So again, God's providing for him when the brook dries up. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel, that I may drink. Is a widow someone that typically you're going to expect, like, help from? Like, you don't go to the poor widow who's also enduring a drought to get taken care of, right? But God sends him there. And so... She was going to bring it. And he called her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. So she is poor. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son so that we may eat it and die. (laughs) So her, her outlook on this whole situation is pretty grim too, right? Like Elijah's like, I need to leave the brook. I need to go find this widow lady, which doesn't seem to make sense on a physical level, who's going to provide for me. She's like, I can't provide for you. We have just enough to like eat and die, right? Like tonight we're going to eat, tomorrow we're going to die. So look at what continues to happen here. And Elijah said to her, don't fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord descends rain upon the earth. Did you notice what's happening here? Elijah had to go in faith knowing that this unlikely scenario was going to have to play out. God said, I'm going to give you a widow that's going to take care of you. and He said, okay, sure, I'll go for that. He goes, this Lady's like, We don't have anything to to take care of you with. We're just gonna kinda eat and die. We don't have much. And he says, Alright, do what you said you're gonna do, but feed me first. What do you think she's thinking? You're thinking about yourself? Right? Know. She's thinking, Okay, so we're gonna skip the eat part, we're just gonna die. <laughs> right? Like, this is all we've got. But he makes a promise to her, and I think this is the moment, like Elijah, remember he got thrown in the fire almost immediately? He's a prophet of the Lord, and he goes to Ahab. I think maybe God is working to expand and grow his faith here, right? He's sending him somewhere unlikely for help, sending him to someone who's reluctant to help, right? But ultimately, he's going to use this kind of dire situation to increase both of their faith, right? Elijah's faith is going to grow from this moment, and this woman's faith is going to grow. So let's continue reading here. So he promises that the flour and the oil will never run out, not until it starts raining again. And she went and did as Elijah said. That's faith right there. She's got one meal as far as she's concerned, and she's willing to trust this guy that it's not going to run out. Right? She went and did as he said. Continuing here. Uh, and she and her, hu- and her household ate for many days. For the jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. So at the end of the day, who's proven true? God, right? And additionally, because Elijah believed God, his word is proven true, right? So let's keep reading here. We're going to keep talking about this widow. Verse 17, After this, the son of the woman, the widow, the mistress of the house became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son? All right, so Elijah's faith is growing. He's seeing God work in so many ways that he might not have expected, ways that the world would say, that's not gonna work. But the one who he's kind of partnering up with right now, the widow and her family, are kind of turning on him, right? She sees her son getting sick. And she thinks it's because of the influence of Elijah. Somehow, some way Elijah's tied to her son being sick. And so she says this. She says, What have you against me, O man of God? So she doesn't question who he's coming from on some level. Maybe this is a sarcastic comment, we don't know. You have come to bring me uh, sorry, you have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and then to cause the death of my son. That's like two negatives, right? Like, have you just come around to tell me like, all the things I'm doing wrong, and then to hurt my family? Now, to be fair, prophets of God, they tell the truth, right? If you're doing something against God, what are they going to say? You're doing something against God, right? That's the idea of bringing sin to remembrance. Like, you need to know when you're messing up so you can change it. Elijah was probably doing that. And so now she's heaping on this other seemingly evil thing to him. But look at what he says. He doesn't let this shrink his faith. You know, in this moment, he could have despaired. He could have been like, oh, man, like, I'm just being hurtful to this family. Like, she doesn't want me here. Like, we say these kinds of things when people are mad at us, right? We think them. But look at what he says. He says, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, oh, Lord, my God. Have you brought calamity even upon a widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life uh, come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. In this section, I, when I look at this, I, I kind of see this moment as Elijah is just kind of doing the will of the Lord at the very beginning of the chapter, Right? Even when he first meets the widow, he's, like, still kind of growing in his faith. He's, like, testing himself a little bit. Like, I'm going to trust the Lord to provide to me, from, to me from the widow. But in this moment, I really see, like, evangelism happening. I see him, like, helping the faith of other people even grow, right? Like, it's moving just from, like, his work with his God to kind of, like, hey, look, God is true, right? At the end of this, the product of it seems to be that. She even says, now I know that you're a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Right? Elijah helped her there. Now certainly none of this would have happened without God raising this child, but that wouldn't have happened without Elijah believing that God could do it. Right? And so we see the faith of Elijah having grown strong through these experiences, now helping this woman's faith grow. Don't we need to do something like that? As Christians, we have times where God is testing us and helping our faith grow, and we're doing that, and we keep trusting Him, and we're growing and growing, but then there comes a time where our faith grows to the point where it should be influencing other people's faith, right? And so Elijah's a good model for us. Like, in desperate situations, I can help people find life, right, so to speak. Now, in this story, we're seeing a physical, literal life Kind of being resurrected, but there's ways that through my faith I can help someone's like spirit or their spiritual life kind of come back right and that's the kind of evangelism or that's kind of reaching out that we need to do and Elijah can kind of show us this model for in our faith with our faith in God we can help other people's faith grow um. all right. Let's look at this next section in chapter 18. We're not going to be able to read all the verses of chapter 18. um, But there are a few places that I kind of want to highlight along the way. Look at verse 1 of chapter 18. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. And this is talking about the third year since it hasn't rained. So, I mean, some time has passed here saying go show yourself to ahab and i will send rain upon the earth so is that clear with everybody the command is go back to ahab that king that you first started with in chapter 17 and when you do that that's going to be the time that i start sending rain all right so if you're elijah what are you thinking right now all right got to go back to where i started got to go back to a guy that i'm very clearly an enemy of now right we're not friends Uh, You know, sometimes God sends us to those people, doesn't he? Like sends us to the people we kind of dread going to. Um, But because we trust and believe God, we go anyway, right? That's exactly what Elijah does. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab, verse 2, and the famine was very severe in Samaria. Okay, in this section, I'm going to kind of summarize this, but they end up meeting together. But in the course of meeting together, Elijah meets a man. Um, and he's been kind of serving God in secret, more or less. His name's Obadiah. Um, he's actually been... Ahab's, Ahab and his wife Jezebel have actually been trying to kill the prophets of God. They've been like looking for them all through the land and killing them when they find them. And so this guy, uh, Obadiah, is actually a part... Of Ahab's like court, kind of his inner group, the people that he worked with, but he's secretly kind of a worshiper of God. And so what he's been doing is when he finds prophets of the Lord or servants of the Lord, he's been hiding them, right? And that's kind of what the beginning of chapter 18 is talking about. So when Elijah comes and says, hey, tell Ahab I'm here, he's like, are you sure you want me to do that? Like, because we've been looking for you a long time and you, we've never been able to find you. If I tell him you're here and you disappear again, he's going to kill me, right? And so he's like, no, no, tell him I'm here. I'll be here. And so that's kind of the exchange that happens. But look at what they begin to talk about when Elijah finally comes in front of Ahab. Verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? Have you guys ever met somebody that just like doesn't like you? Right? Right? And for any reason, it doesn't have to be faith-based reasons, but they just don't like you. And so like every time you kind of come around them and like if you have to talk to them at work or whatever, they just kind of nag you. You ever had that happen? Imagine that happening, but just because of what you believe in, right? Like imagine they know you're a Christian and so they nag you and they make fun of you or raise problems every time you come around. That's Ahab and Elijah. Would you, like, would you like it if God said, hey, go to that person and try to talk to them about me? Would you like that? What about if you had to go to that person and prove them wrong? Would you enjoy that? That seems like you're just going to be heaping like, mess on your heads, right? Like You're just going to make the situation worse for yourselves if you go and do that. But that's what God's telling Elijah to do. And so I think here we're learning a lesson even for ourselves that sometimes God asks us to do things like that. And so look at what he continues to say. Elijah says, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Those are false gods. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. That's his wife, Jezebel. What Elijah is saying here is he's kind of setting the record straight. Ahab thinks, because Elijah is trying to be a prophet of God, that he's causing all the problem in Israel, right? And on the surface, that looks true. The very first verse of chapter 17, it will not rain until I say so. So in Ahab's eyes, all his problems right now are whose fault? Elijah's. But the truth of the matter is, why is it not raining? Right? Because Ahab has steered the country away from God. Right? You see, he's just kind of seeing the surface, and Elijah's trying to get him to see the deep stuff. Really, this is happening because of your sin, your rebellion. You've brought it upon yourself, really. Right. So the challenge is this. Bring all of the prophets of these false gods who you guys feed and you guys support, bring them to Mount Carmel, and we'll see who's right and wrong, right? Baal, it's worth noting that Baal typically was viewed as the, the, the I don't know how to say this, like the weather god, um, kind of the god of the rains and sender of the lightning and that kind of stuff, also fertility, um, And so the challenge that's being issued here when we sum up verses 20 and verse down is they go to the top of the mountain and Elijah says, all right, and I think this is important actually, I want to read this verse. Um, Verse 21, he comes near to the people and he says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. So basically, this challenge is supposed to prove one way or the other. Like, if God is real, follow him. If your God is real, follow him. And we're going to figure that out today, right? So they go to the top of the mountain. All these false prophets, the people of Israel, Ahab's up there. Everybody's watching this go on. Elijah comes up, and the challenge is this. You're going to build an altar, right? And on this altar... The prophets of Baal, you guys, you're going to pray. And if your God sends fire from heaven to eat up this altar and its offerings, then your God is real. And so they say, sure, we'll do that. And so they start praying and praying and praying and praying. And they're praying for hours out loud, blah, blah, blah. Nothing ever happens. I mean, they go all day doing this stuff. It gets so extreme that they start like cutting themselves and trying to like coerce their God into action. Right. So. When twilight comes, Elijah says, enough of this, my turn. And he says, but before I go, right, I want a bunch of people. I want buckets and buckets of water dumped on my altar, right? So much so that there's basically like a moat around the altar. And then look at verse, uh, where am I here? Verse 36, this is Elijah's prayer. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I, I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And then verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed Uh, the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. Elijah offers a prayer once, very concisely offers it. And I don't know about you guys, but if you've ever been camping with wet wood, it doesn't work out so well. But when Elijah calls on God to act... The fire that he sends is so intense that not just the offering and the, the wet wood is burned up, but the stones are burned up, all the water's dried up. Total and complete uh, sign here. So who do you think won the showdown? Right? Elijah was proven to be a prophet of the true God, and Yahweh or Jehovah was proven to be that God. Right? So what do you think Elijah is expecting in this moment? All, it says the people of Israel came to watch. I don't know why. I don't know how they all got up there. But apparently it's, it's not just Elijah and these prophets up here. People are watching. Ahab is up there watching. What do you think would happen right after this happens? Like if In Elijah's mind, what is he expecting? I imagine he's expecting a, I'm sorry. I guess you were right. We should probably change some things. You know what? I'll tear down the altar. Maybe Ahab will be convinced and he'll become a, a believer in God and he'll change the whole nation to be good, Israelite, God-following people. Right? But you know what happens? Not any of that stuff. The prophets, they say, wow, your God is real. And Elijah takes them. It says, according to the word of the Lord, it says in, uh, where am I? Verse 40, at the end of verse 40, Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. God wanted these prophets killed, and that's according to the word of the Lord. You can go in the Old Testament and look, false prophets, they get killed. Um, that's just the law. And so they're, they're killed off, and you're thinking, okay, Ahab, your move. Time to make some reformations, time to change the laws, time to start following God. You know what this actually turns into? even more rebellion (laughs) you'd think if there was ever a time somebody would understand that they're wrong it would have been this moment you know don't we always say that if I could just see God do a miracle I would turn and follow him don't we say things don't we think that sometimes like if I could just see it'd be so much better because then I'd really believe well what about Ahab what about all the people of Israel that saw this happen Look at chapter 19, verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel, that's his wife, all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Look at what Elijah does, verse 3. Then he was afraid. And he arose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Elijah probably expected a total repentance. Remember like when Jonah preached in Nineveh, he probably expected something like that, you know? Everybody repenting, the king repenting, everybody. But instead, what does he get? A threat. They say, in 24 hours, we'll be cursed if we don't make you like the prophets you slaughtered, you know? and you got to be thinking he's going what? Like what? How is this happening? And this man that's been building his faith and building his faith and growing in his faith and he's so courageous, right? Is just kind of shattered in this moment. He's just kind of broken. Don't we kind of experience this sometimes as Christians? Like we feel our faith growing and we're walking with God and we're doing our best and we finally reach out to someone like the widow to help their faith grow. And then God calls us to do something and maybe a little bigger and a little harder and we're courageous enough to pursue it. But because we have our own expectations and we have our own ideas of what's supposed to happen when we're faithful to God, it lets us down. I mean, did God say that to Elijah? Do we have any indication that he told Elijah things would change after this? No? He just said, go do it. He didn't say the nation was going to turn around. He didn't say people would be sorry. And so why is Elijah like so upset and afraid when he's been dealing with this since the beginning? I have to assume it's because he had expectations of something different. Don't we do that to ourselves sometimes? Like God just wants you to do what he's saying, but because in your head you think, oh, and it's going to make this happen and things are going to, you know, this person's going to listen and they're going to change and they're going to get better. And then when it doesn't happen, what have you done? kind of let yourself down didn't you and we just have to trust god that he knows what he's doing and so look at how god kind of works with elijah in this moment of weakness this moment of uh i would even say despair maybe even depression we're seeing elijah go through um elijah goes and hides in the wilderness in verse four look what he says verse four and he asked that he may might die Saying, it is enough for now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Have you guys ever just felt so disappointed in something? You thought, man, like, I just kind of wish things would end. Like, I would, I, you know, being with God would be better. I just kind of want my life to end and move on, you know? Paul says something like that, right? To, to die and be with Christ would be gain, but for your sakes, I'll stick around. Paraphrase. When we kind of convince ourselves of something that God hasn't convinced us of, this is what can happen, right? We can kind of go through these kinds of fears and these depressions and these disappointments. Verse 5, Behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. God takes care of him in this moment. He eats and drinks. He lays down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. God sees him despairing. He sees him depressed. He gives him food. He gives him water. He lets him rest for 40 days and 40 nights as he's kind of going along the way. And where does God send him? Mount Horeb. This mountain we also would call Mount Sinai. This is where Moses was when he received the Ten Commandments from God. right? This is where Moses was when he saw God pass by and God's hand, as it were, covered him so that he didn't die. Uh, Sinai is a really significant place. I don't think it's a coincidence that God sends him there. Um, whenever you and I are like in kind of a place that Elijah is in right now, like when we're struggling... With disappointment we thought God was going to do something or things were going to change in people that and it doesn't quite pan out and we get disappointed and we get hurt I think the best thing that we can do is kind of what God is symbolically trying to get Elijah to do and that's to get closer to him Um, there's really two places I think at this point in history that like in a figurative slash literal way, you could get closer to God, and that was either to go to the temple in Jerusalem or to go to Mount Sinai, like, symbolically. Well, he can't go into Jerusalem, probably, so where does he go? Sinai. God sends him there. I think our key, when we're dealing with these kinds of situations, is to is to draw close to God. And so, when you get through chapter 19... Uh, The Lord asks Elijah in verse 9, What are you doing here, Elijah? Well, Elijah could say, Well, you sent me here. (laughs) Right? He could say that. But the Lord's trying to get at something deeper. Just like Elijah was trying to get at something deeper with Ahab, God's trying to get at something deeper with Elijah. Why are you here? He repeats it. And this is kind of one of the last big points that I want to make as we're wrapping up here. Um... God tells him, go out, stand on the mountain before the Lord. That's verse 11. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when, uh, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, Abel, Malah, whatever, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. What I see in this is Elijah expected big things from God, right? No rain right off the bat. He learned God by going to Ahab and telling him there was going to be a drought. God took care of him by sending him ravens that brought him food every day. And then he goes to a widow who miraculously has enough food constantly out of this one little jar to just keep eating. And then when her son gets sick, God raised him from the dead because Elijah was faithful enough to pursue that. right? And then Elijah goes to Ahab and he sees the prophets of Baal being taken care of by Ahab and Ahab's Rebellion, And so he challenges them and God proves himself true and he expects repentance and everybody just kind of threatens him and sends him on his way and he's shattered. He's been seeing God in big ways. He's been seeing signs and wonders and miracles. And so God comes like a wind, but he's not there. And he comes, there's this earthquake, but God's not in the earthquake, right? Isn't it interesting that God comes to Elijah when he says, I'm going to come to you, you're going to see me, but he doesn't come with those things. He comes like with just a small little voice. Isn't it weird that that's the way he comes to Elijah instead of in the earthquake or in the winds? I mean, God himself, he could come in any way he wants to. He comes with a little whisper. I think in this moment, that's exactly what Elijah needed. I don't know exactly why God chose that way. I just have to imagine that's what Elijah needed. He's been getting the big. He's been getting the earthquakes. He's been getting the winds. But he needed to know God was there intimately, right? He needed to know God was there personally. He needed to know that God was still with him. And what better way to do that than words, you know? Um, If you want to share, like, an intimate moment with somebody, don't you usually talk a little quieter, more closely, right? And you, you talk like this you're close, and you're talking about something important and something private, and it's just between you two, right? I kind of envision that's what this is, right? And in that voice, he says, why are you here? Well, Elijah gives his big old answer, and you know what I see after that? God listens, and he just says, okay, time for the next thing. As Christians, when we're going through tough stuff and we get kind of this low place, God is with us. Listen for that voice. Um, He talks to us in his word all the time. He's trying to confirm us in his word all the time. Read it. Listen to it. That's his voice. But also, know from Elijah's example, know from other examples, know from the word itself that God wants you to pick up and keep going. Keep doing. Keep being sent. Keep being spent. Chapter 21, Elijah That's the next time you see him. You don't see him for a couple chapters. Chapter 21, Ahab is worse than ever. He's just trending down, 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 down. In fact, he's gotten so bad that he allows his wife to convince him to kill somebody just because he wants his vineyard. That's how bad he's gotten. Would you think he would ever turn around? He didn't turn around on Mount Carmel. He hasn't turned around at any point. And God says, hey, Elijah, go talk to Ahab one more time. Elijah had every reason in his mind not to do it. Right? They want to kill me. This hasn't worked before. Yada yeah, yada yeah, yada. Yeah. He goes, tells Ahab what he needs to hear. You've sinned. You're going down the wrong path. And lo and behold, what does Ahab do? Chapter 21. He actually repents. He actually like tears his clothes and he sobs and he repents. And God said, "I'm going to kill him." And Elijah tells him that. And when he Repents, God says, "I'll spare him." When we can just keep pressing on, when we can keep doing the Lord's work, you never know when God will do something, what God will do, because Elijah thought it was done in chapter nineteen. That's why he got sad. But if he had kept pressing on, he would have gotten to chapter twenty-one, right? In our own lives, are we giving up like Elijah? After Mount Carmel, or are we going to keep pressing on so that we can see something like chapter 21? Something we don't ever expect to happen. That's kind of my challenge for you. I know it has been a longer lesson than my usual, um, but hopefully it's helpful for you to not only learn maybe a little bit about Elijah's life, but to see how God uses Elijah's life and ministry, not only to help and to serve other people, which is what we're doing as Christians, But also, it's a really good model of how we kind of go through these ups and downs of faith and how God moves us through those, right? Now, how he can work in the big signs, he can work in the depressions, he can work in the valleys to produce something like what happens in chapter 21, So I appreciate you guys' attention. Hopefully, this lesson's been helpful for you in some place, wherever you are in your walk with God. Chuck's got a song picked out for us that we're going to sing. If there's some way that this group can help you, praying for you, whatever, this song is your time to kind of think about that. If you want to come forward and let the whole group know about something, you can do that after the song. If you want to just talk to someone next to you about something going on, please do that as well. We'd encourage you to do one of those things as we're standing and singing.